Welcome to Sex Ed Rewind, reflections on how we learn about sex. Hey there, before we dive into our episode, I wanted to give a quick content warning. We will be talking briefly about sexual assault in this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Sex Ed Rewind. I'm your host, Caro Confort, and I'm super excited to introduce my guest for this week, a new friend of mine and a podcast mentor, uh, Mia Schachter. <laughs> Mia is a consent educator and an intimacy coordinator for TV and film, as well as a podcaster and writer. Their background in philosophy, gender studies, and neuroscience informs their work. They teach classes online, work privately with individuals and duos, and they've intimacy coordinated shows such as HBO's Perry Mason, ABC's Grey's Anatomy, and BET's Twenties. Mia, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. It's been a bit of an emo- emotional roller coaster of a day, but I'm really glad to be here and I have a cat on my lap and that's how I like it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you have a cat on your lap and that we can hopefully have some fun and yeah. be less emotional, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I've been looking forward to this today. Fantastic. Me too. So let's dive right into it. On Sex Ed Rewind, we always like to help our listeners get in the mind of a young Mia, because we talk a lot about what life was like for you when you were young through the lens of sex education. So we have some questions to help us understand what was happening with you back in the day. So can you share with our listeners when you were in high school, what was your favorite band, favorite fashion trend and favorite slang word? It's funny. I've listened to your show and I was like, I know what mine are. And then now I've of course forgotten. Um, (laughs) In high school, I I really, I remember really liking the band Arcade Fire. I knew them. Yeah. I think they were good. Oh, they were great. I mean, they're still great. They're a phenomenal band. It, it wasn't really a deliberate choice, but I was really into music that my dad was into. He took it upon himself to educate me about rock and roll history. So I was mostly even in high school listening to like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Beach Boys and the Who. I mean, for my 17th birthday, my dad and I went to a Who concert. That's Um, amazing. Yeah. At the Hollywood Bowl. Um, So that was the music that I was into. But it's funny, Arcade Fire really does sort of have a bit of like an imprint on my high school journey. Um, Fashion trend. Oh, my God. This wasn't my favorite fashion trend. I remember being really stumped by it, but it's one that definitely stands out, which was the like the headband across your forehead. Mm. <laughs> you I'm that? really glad you I'm really glad you brought this up. Of course, I remember yeah. that. So there was like there was one day everyone was doing that in my high school. And and I remember thinking, like, this is weird. How does it sit on your head? Mm-hmm. And how do people with bangs do it? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> I had bangs. And there was one morning where I literally tied like, like a string around my head and I, and I walked downstairs and my mom kind of laughed at me mm-hmm. and was like, okay, you know, and I look back now as an adult and I'm like, mom, why did you let me leave mm-hmm. the house like that? But of course she did because she was like trying to respect me, you know? Right. But she knew, um, she knew you would she regret knew. it. She knew. Boy, did she know. It wasn't good. No, no. That was a weird trend. Yeah. 
I hear you that I'm glad you brought that up. No one's, no one's brought that one up yet, but that was like a, a poignant one of the time. Yeah, it was, it was a moment. It was mm-hmm. a blip. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And my favorite slang word, you know, I started, I graduated high school in 2007. So it was right when a- online acronyms were making their way into actual speech, mm-hmm. you know, like OMG, LOL, like yep. people would say those out loud. And I never liked that. I do feel like it's it's the appropriate moment to reflect on the fact that I cursed a lot and I still do. That has always been part of my vernacular and I've always I almost said I've always gotten shit for it. I've I've always gotten shit for it from my mother, like not from other people, but mm-hmm. um yeah, I've been told I have a potty mouth. There's emphasis there. I don't know, they're good words, you know. Yeah, there are good words. They're short, they're like phonetically, you know, they pack a punch words I was literally just gonna say they pack a punch yeah I'm with you (laughs) I'm with you on the cuss words they're very Mm -hmm. powerful okay Mm -hmm. great so we got a sense of what a young Mia was wearing listening to saying Mm -hmm. now talk a little bit about what type of school you went to so where was it located in the world I grew up in Los Angeles I was born in Cedar sinai I went to high school at the Hamilton High School Performing Arts Academy the music academy is what it's called but it was really a performing arts school um, it was a magnet school it was part of a much larger public high school that had like six different schools in it there was you know there was like a global sciences school and there was a humanities school and mine was the performing arts academy there were 3300 kids at the time that i left and there were 800 in my graduating class alone so that's that's real big it was it was really big that's like a university kind of oh yeah yeah i mean my i went i my first year of college i went to sarah lawrence college which had 1200 people it was like <laughs> I, you know i went the opposite direction so magnet music school mm-hmm. very cool very large i was there for theater for theater okay yeah. Very cool. In LA, 07. Okay, so I think we got the rundown. I think we got the basics of the school. So let's dive into our sex education questions now that we know all of the info on a young Mia. I love this. I now have this image in my head of like me walking through the corridors of Hamilton High School with that stupid headband on going, (laughs) fuck shit. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like that's... Uh, listening to Arcade Fire. That's just how I. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's Great. like a yeah, like a highlights reel. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like it. it. I'm into that image. Yeah. Okay. So, sex education. Did you receive any? Mm. Yes. God, I hope this isn't still the case, but I have a nagging feeling that it is. Freshman year, you had to take a life skills class and a health class. And these classes were unique in the sense that the curriculum was completely left up to the teacher, Hmm. which is unbelievable, as I say it out loud. The health class, the thing that I remember the most is like we watched that video of the mother giving birth. Yeah. I mean, that's that's super common to just show a live birth. And yeah. just right there, give it to him yeah. straight. And like not talk about it or be like, hey, you're going to witness some shit. <laughs> Drop in, kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it the, as I'm describing it now, it's like, you know, I can see how as a teacher, you'd be like, cool. That just takes all the pressure off me. I just hit play. But really, that's incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we did have this this woman came and talked about uh birth control and stuff was she i mean she was contracted in from some outside organization yeah you know and what's interesting about it is that she i think oh my god I'm hesitant to say this because I think, I wonder if my memory is playing a trick on me, but I want to say she was an ex-nun. Oh, okay. Wow. Not what I was expecting. Yeah. Um, but like a radical ex-nun, like, you know, went way, way the other way. Got it. Um, she was probably in her fifties and, and seemed like she had like my, uh, the vibe that she was giving off was that she had like been a groupie you know, for a while mm-hmm, and like, mm-hmm. seen some shit. So this classroom session or classroom sessions that you had with this radical ex-nun. Yeah. How did you net out? Like, did you feel good about that? Did you feel like they were trying to scare you? Like, what would you say the general vibe of mm. that classroom was? They weren't trying to scare us. My memory of this class is that I didn't learn anything new in it. Hmm. which means that I got my sex ed before that. And I was already somehow kind of maybe ahead a little bit of like the general public in terms of that. And I, I know for a fact that I was seeking out that information for myself, even at that early age, my mom gave me a book when I was 10, I think about like the changes to a woman's body and what I could expect. And I ate it up. I was fascinated. So f- from a pretty early age, I was captivated by bodies and sex and sexuality to the point where the feeling that I had in this health class was like, I, you know, I got it. Like, I don't need this shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned that you had already made a point to seek out information about sex. What did that look like for you? I see it mostly reflected in like the TV shows that I was watching and the movies that I was watching and the books that, you know, left an imprint on me, such as like The Scarlet Letter, you know? So it wasn't that I was so active about it. Like, I wish I could tell you that I was Googling porn. I I was not like, I was, I was also, I was simultaneously fascinated and also, also absolutely petrified of sex, like completely, completely petrified. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you have anything that stands out when you think about those early materials that like weren't porn, but clearly gave you some information about sex? Yeah. The OC. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I was, I was a diehard OC fan. So this yeah. is really, this is really striking a chord. Yeah. I mean, that was, and also even like, even, even Misha Barton, I don't know, Marissa's, um, you know, foray into bisexuality. I was like, oh, wild stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm really, I love that you just brought that up. And I think it's also (laughs) really interesting because I don't know if you've rewatched it as an adult. No, my friend, my friend who is the same, she's 31, is watching it for the first time and Mm. hearing her like, you know and watching her instagram stories of like you know the the car like the the car crap like the slow-mo and the glass mm-hmm. dropping and the mm-hmm. imogen heap and like all of it the she's imogen heap will she's never going leave me. through it yeah. yeah yeah i can hear it right now it's like yeah. burned and mm-hmm. i think 
if you have the time, you should give it a rewatch because it truly does not hold up in ways really? that will like horrify you. Yeah. Oh, I mean, no. look, it's fantastic and hilarious, but in terms of a sex education, it, it's bad. Wow. It is super sexual. I totally also yeah. remember like you could feel the sexual tension. There's explicit storylines about losing virginity Mm -hmm. and being promiscuous and bisexuality. Um, But when you watch it back through the lens of like, particularly a consent educator, for example, the communication is just wild. And, And particularly between Ryan and Marissa, I think in the entirety of the show, they exchange a total of six sentences to each other. Well, that's, you know, I've talked a lot about this and I feel like it's really potent here, which is that most television relies on characters' inability to communicate their feelings and their needs. With good communication, there's no drama, there's there's little conflict, and so it's like a writer's nightmare. They only can write characters who, like, don't have certain skills. <laughs> that is very well put, and <laughs> now that you've said it out loud, I'm like, of course everyone has to be an idiot on TV, because right, exactly. otherwise no one's going to watch. Right. But yeah, the OC as sex ed is a very funny concept. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So I love that. I love that for a young Mia. Um, (laughs) So I'm curious more about this, the classroom setting. Okay. Was it in any way comprehensive? Was it more biology? Like walk us through what that looked like. STIs. Like I'm sure that we went like one by one through every single STI. Yeah. And, you know, this was also like, this was in 2003 because I was a freshman mm-hmm. and there was still a lot of sex ed was around fear of AIDS, fear of HIV. And I remember actually, okay, so here's another place that I learned some sex ed, Grey's Anatomy. Mm, okay. And they really tried to do proper you know, scientific, at least, uh, information dissemination. So I remember very vividly a scene from Grey's Anatomy where there's a woman who is HIV positive, undetectable, and is pregnant, and she wants an abortion. She says, you know, I can't live with myself if I give my child HIV. And Katherine Heigl tells her, I believe, Gosh, it would be amazing if I actually nail this statistic. (laughs) More than the statistic that I remember the line (laughs) that that Catherine Hagel said. I believe it was that your baby has a 2% chance of being born with HIV, which is less of a chance than it has of being born with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. Now I would imagine that that number is even lower. For sure. But I remember that really standing out to me because at the time it was the only thing that I think I had ever heard about um, like living, living with HIV, right. As opposed to dying from HIV. Right. Seeing it as something you live with and not as a death sentence. Right. Which is what a lot of HIV education, if it's there tends to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. So I would love to hear more about the dialogue between you and the folks that were in your household. You mentioned your mom yep. giving you that book at 10. Mm-hmm. Did it stop there? Or was there any kind of dialogue around sex education in your household? There are, so, okay. I, I'm pretty sure that I found out what sex was like relatively late, mm-hmm. like at eight or nine. Okay. Um, I remember being in the back of my mom's Mitsubishi Montero and my sister was in the car 
at the time. And she was four years younger than me. And I'm really surprised that my mom didn't say like, you know what, I'll answer this question later. But instead she gave us both the information at the same time. And I think I said the classic, like how are babies made? Mm -hmm. And she told me in like pretty strict anatomical terms in a very heterosexual way also like Mm -hmm. heteronormative. And I believe, I want to say that she tacked on a little footnote, which was, and people sometimes just do it for fun because it feels good, you know, doing her due diligence and being like, sex is also for pleasure. Okay, I did it. You know, right, like right, that. not <laughs> wanting to harp on it. Like, yeah. I hope I get no questions about this. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that. And then, you know, my dad, and he'll never hear this, but he has a very cis normative and binary understanding of sex like recently told my sister well if if a wife's not having sex with her husband like of course he's gonna cheat on her or something like that okay so that's where we are right he did send me a picture today of himself with Rebecca Solnit's men explain things to me and he was like I'm doing the work thank you for the recommendation so you know it's a good one it's both at the same time right I remember really specific moments around sexuality education from my dad that came in the form of like these very passing comments that meant a lot to me. So Mm -hmm. for example, there's an episode of Sex and the City where Carrie is, oh my God, it's so gross to say, her column is about trying to have sex like a man, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. which she perceives as she gets to come and he doesn't. Mm -hmm. You know, we could get into the whole issue of like, you can't just flip genders and like call that equality, like blah, blah, blah. But she's hooking up with this guy. He goes down on her. She comes and then she like gets up and leaves. The camera leaves you on his face like, Mm -hmm. and my dad was there at that moment and he was appalled. Like he was, he was outraged. Interesting. I don't know. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like, oh, that's so fucked up. You know, like, how could she do that kind of attitude? Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about that one is, and I have talked about this publicly, um, this is not like news to anybody, but my most, I also wrote about it in an article in Salty that like my, my most scarring sexual assault experience was that someone got furious with me, furious with me, like stormed out of the room, furious with me when I stopped him during sex because it was hurting me because I didn't help him finish, you Mm -hmm. know, like he was like, what am I supposed to do with this? He invoked blue balls. I mean, it was like the whole nine yards. Right. It's interesting because of course my dad, if, if my dad were to hear that story, he would be, he would be horrified. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's not a far cry from that comment that he made. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that that comment that he made seeded itself in my brain and led me to justify this guy's behavior. Mm -hmm. Like very clearly in my mind, that's like a track. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I know that's not always easy. Mm -hmm. I think what is also so clear about that and generally for young folks, passing comments hold so much mm-hmm. more weight than I think most adults realize. And I think part of that is because young people are so thirsty for this kind of information. And a lot of the time they're not getting it. And yeah. so even a passing comment means a lot because it's something that they can add to the vault. It's like, okay, well, now I know that this is something that we should be appalled at. 
you know, like that's the message there. I think another reason why the, why the passing comments are so significant is that they reveal how the parent really feels mm-hmm. because they're not scripting this as like a sit down conversation. You know, the conversations that my parents had with me where they were like, okay, now's the time to talk to you about this thing. It feels canned. Mm-hmm. When my dad would make these comments in passing and he would also make comments that made it really clear to me that a woman needs to like sexually satisfy her husband and that it's, sort of a necessary character trait in a woman that we have a high libido, you know, with, with no awareness, A, that I was queer or that that was even something that should be discussed or, or on the table. You know, I, at the time, didn't even understand a gender spectrum and myself as not feeling aligned with one side or the other, or quite honestly, with the whole idea of a line. And then, you know, on top of that, like not realizing what that would do to my self-esteem, not having any awareness of, you know, that in fact, it's not that men have a high libido and women are frigid and need to meet men where they're at. It's that there's an entire spectrum of libidos and you actually, the better way to look at it is like, you want to find someone who's a match or you want to build your relationship structure around both people's sexual needs where they're different. Absolutely. It's like a candid look at Mm -hmm. where their head is actually at and unscripted. I think you said. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like laughing in my head a little bit because I'm noticing the sort of paradox here. Like everything that I just said about my dad is true and he's disgusted by polyamory. Hmm. Interesting. Right. I'm assuming that's something that has come up later on when polyamory was brought into the discussion or did he talk about that when you were young as well? No, I mean, oh my God, I'm just now remembering this time. Oh my God, I'm painting my dad in such a bad light. I swear he's like mostly a good guy. He, one time we were, we were at lunch, just the two of us and he like checked out a woman and I, and I said, dad, I mean, I must've been like 14 or 15. And he was like, what? I can read the menu. I just can't order off of it. Hmm. It's so cringy. It's so cringy. Do you remember understanding what that meant? I knew what it meant. I yeah. knew what he was saying. Yeah. And at the same time, I remember both being kind of grossed out and thinking like, is that okay? Right. You know, I guess it's okay. Like my dad said it. Right. But it's really uh, just talking about this with you. I'm now seeing how incongruous it is that he has all these ideas about men and women and how we should all be interacting together and like how horrible it is that it's like the worst thing in the world if your wife is frigid, mm-hmm. but he cannot get on board with polyamory. The reason poly, I mean, polyamory has come up because that's my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And he still makes comments like, you know, I had a conversation with someone who was a friend of his who brought up that perhaps she was interested in that for her life. And I mentioned it to my dad and he goes, ew, you know, just, just gross, like disgust. And he was like, I know that you don't think it's gross, but ugh. And I was like, you know, it's not disgusting because consent is involved and it's all agreed upon and everyone's talking about it. You, you know, when you make comments, like I can... I can look at the menu. I just can't order off of it. I mean, there's so many things wrong with that. Yeah. So many things wrong with that. And disgusting is such, is such a specific word that it really leaves you with a good sense of how he feels about that. Yeah. Like he didn't say bad or wrong. Like, like, ew. Yeah. That particularly, especially when it comes to like sexuality and the spectrum of sexuality and gender, I feel like that word to use your phrase again, really packs a punch because Mm -hmm. it uh, invokes a lot of internal shame. 
Right. Right. Because the dominant cultural narrative that like anything outside of vanilla or P and V sex is disgusting. So to hear that hurled is -hmm. particularly wounding, or at least that that's sort of like how I, how I felt when I heard that. Yeah. I think what you're pointing to is like, it's certainly indicated for me that if I have multiple partners at any point that I can't talk to him about it, like I can't share with him. Yeah. I'm so happy you brought that up too. Going back to our discussion about like side comments, they're very silencing, you know, like you as a young person, you said you weren't really aware as I know I wasn't at that time. And I feel like a lot of us who were a part of that generation, we're not aware of the spectrum of gender or sexuality, but when one becomes aware, one remembers those comments Mm -hmm. and that is going to impact your internal dialogue about those things and your ability to come out as those things and talk about them with other people. Cause you're like the general you, not you specifically, but yeah. you know, w- a person is like, well, my dad said that it was gross. So I probably shouldn't try this or like bring it up to someone else. Like that's or if I do, I'm going to hide it. Yeah, exactly. Like I can't, it. I shouldn't talk about this because of this side comment that I've internalized. Yeah. You know, there was a time when I was living with my parents at the beginning of COVID, we were talking about pronouns and my dad made that just stale comment that I, I wish they would come up with, uh, something else other than they, because it sounds plural. Oh gosh. And I, I know I was like, God, dad, you are a decade behind. Yeah. Good Lord. And I moved out of my parents' house and about six weeks later was like, yep, they, them for me. Thanks. (laughs) And waited a while to tell him because I was like, there was also this experience that I had one of my cousins who is non-binary and uses they, them pronouns where um, we were all going to brunch and my dad called me and he was like, I just don't want to fuck up. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything wrong, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, a theme for him. And So like, you know, what do I need to know? And I was like, well, so my cousin uses they, them pronouns, which means that not only is it their pronouns, but like, we're going to lunch with their brother and they are their brother's sibling and they're their parent's child, right? Not daughter or sister. Right. They, them is, you need to do more than than that. Yeah. Right. And, and he was like, well, I'm not going to be talking about her in the third person while she's there. So what do I really need to know about like for brunch? And I was like, they, right. You know, like I was off to a strong start. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Uh, so that conversation really planted itself in my brain. And when I was at the point where I was like, I kind of feel like I need to tell my parents this because it says so on my everything. And I just haven't told them that conversation, like really, was was the block. It was those two things. It was the conversation where he said, I wish they would use something that didn't sound plural. And then also the conversation about my cousin. Yeah. I mean, that stuff sticks with you. And like, I feel like recently it's come up on social media, like people post things and they think that no one in their life is that, but all the people in their lives that are going through that have now clocked. Okay. I can't, I can't talk to this person about it. Right. And like, if that's a parent, that's a big deal, especially for a young person, you know, that's like 70% of the people you interact with in the day is like who lives in your, in your home, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big deal. 
So, okay. We heard a lot about dad, a little bit from mom, which sounded like mm-hmm. it was, it was a good start. I'm curious to know about your social circle outside of family and school. Was that something that you talked about with your friends at the time? Ooh, getting into it. Um, okay. I was a late bloomer. Uh, I went through puberty pretty late. Mm -hmm. I'm a very petite person. I've always been really small and there's a lot of reasons for that that have to do with like autoimmune and gut illness and stuff. But as a kid, emotionally, I was so just torn apart by how small I was and how I was being perceived as so much younger than I was. And people weren't taking me seriously. Like I was noticing that people didn't value what I had to say because they thought of me as younger or less than. And I had this group of friends. I had, I was in love with my best friend's boyfriend. Jesse's girl was like the theme song of my high school experience, which I now understand, you know, being in love with your best friend's boyfriend, it's not an accident for me, at least it was a protective mechanism. I didn't then have to actually date anybody. Mm -hmm. I could just pine away Mm -hmm. and sort of feel like I'm the victim in the situation. Mm -hmm. So it took the pressure off in a lot of ways. I didn't actually have to like date or have sex or like deal with my fears around that stuff. I remember very distinctly, I say my best friend and it's like, this person is clearly not your best friend if they're saying this kind of thing, but you know, it's high school's complicated. Mm -hmm. So the boy that I was in love with, who, by the way, I'm still very close friends with, he and my best friend and I, we were like walking down the hall and he said something about someone having a crush on me. And she said, ew, can you imagine Mia having sex? That's disgusting. Yikes. Yeah. And then for, for many, many years, this is really sad. This is really sad for many years. Um, And like well into my 20s, I sort of had this complex in my head that like if anyone found me attractive, they were probably a pedophile. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, that's quite a cross to bear. Yeah, it was also, as I now understand, like really mean. It was this feeling that I had when I I started getting like checked out Mm -hmm. or hit on or catcalled. Like I would immediately, this wall would go up and I would be like, you are disgusting if you're attracted to me. Because I look like a child. Yeah, there's that word again, huh? Yeah. Disgusting. Would you say that sort of colors the memories that you have of talking about sex with your peers? A little bit. I didn't have a whole lot of friends who were having sex in high school. You know, that seemed like something that was like reserved for the popular kids. And I Mm -hmm. felt somewhat outside of that group. There was also, you know, there was infamous cast parties. Mm where people would walk around drinking and then wake up next to somebody. And that always seemed like fun and glamorous to me, but also really far away from my life. Yeah. That kind of reads in the way you talk about it. It feels almost like you were interested in it, but in a way that it was like stuff for other people to do. Yeah. Observing from afar. Mm -hmm. Collecting data. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay, cool. So... I feel like we touched on a lot of the the main channels, right? We got family in there. We got some of the stuff in school. We touched on media, peers. So moving beyond high school now, can you share with us the intersecting identities that you hold that you feel like were important to your sex ed journey? So I definitely learned about sex through the lens of understanding myself as a cis woman. 
And my desires, as they sort of came out of their crevices, it started to become clear that they were not strictly hetero desires. And the way that I was expressing my desires and my sexuality was coming out in ways that could be seen as like traditionally masculine. So I started to kind of explore gender without really knowing that that was what I was doing. Mm. I knew that I was queer. I think I knew on like a gut level when I was in high school. And then when I was in college, you know, this kind of sucks, but like had proof in the sense that I was dating a woman. And I I hate that because people don't say that for straight people. Like, how do you know that you're straight if Mm -hmm. you've never slept with someone? But, you know, I did have, I was like, oh, okay. I don't, it's not just that I like gay porn. You know, it's like, there's actually more to it than that. Fast forward to now, and this past year has been full of queer crushes and no sex whatsoever, pandemic induced. So there was this sort of repression of this queerness. And then the gender queer stuff kept bubbling up. And now I feel like I've got a pretty solid grasp on like what my identity is, though even just today I was like, you actually don't need a grasp. You're allowed to just always be figuring it out. That's something that I really appreciate about the term gender fluid. And I identify most with that term because my gender is changing all the time. And so when I ask myself, what is my gender? It's like, maybe the question needs to be, what is my gender today? Mm -hmm. I love the length of your (laughs) response. I feel like it's very telling as to the fluid nature of your identities uh, you know because some people come on and they're like I'm a do 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 oh. next question and I'm like that's great wow. you know what I mean like if that's what you are but like you just took us on the journey of the fluid nature of your identities and I feel like that was great <laughs> I'm really glad that you took the time to let us into the thought process and the journey of figuring those out and claiming they aren't yeah, figured out. This no is idea. like a in perpetuity situation. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember this could be a reflection on back then, or it could be a reflection on right now, seeing your identity is represented in sex education material? Yes. When I was in college, I was volunteering at the Blue Stockings bookstore on the Lower East Side. I love that. Story. Yeah, it's fantastic. So a lot of the sex head that I was getting from there was incredibly intersectional. Thank goodness. It's interesting. That's like a really complicated question because I used to see myself in cis women, in white cis women. Mm -hmm. Like I could watch the OC and like relate to Summer and Marissa. You know, it's a, it's almost like a double-edged sword because yes, on the one hand, like when I was identifying as a cis woman, um, seeing other cis women was um, was validating. Like I saw myself in them. And at the same time, I really internalized the negative tropes about them. Like I would apply those to myself and in rejecting the binary, I now also receive that information and can really go, is this for me? Do I want that or not? Is that mine or is it someone else's? Do I see myself represented? So at the time, yeah. Now it's like a little more complicated. You have to carefully seek out sex ed that includes queer identities and non-binary experiences of gender. 
Yeah. Uh, What I really like about what you just said is the importance of your ability to ask those questions Mm -hmm. to holding true to your identities. Like it was very important to be able to ask yourself, do I want this or not in order for you to feel your identities, right? And like, we don't teach young people to have that internal dialogue. And that is what I think a lot of people don't realize truly is sex education, emotional literacy, and the ability to question what you're seeing and see if it fits for you or not. And the or not is so important. And, you know, if you had been given the language or the permission to ask yourself those questions as a young person, like who knows how fast you would have gotten there. And yeah, we can ask ourselves those things, but we don't teach young people one that we can or two, how to do that. And so we just stick them with these tropes and these stereotypes and the bare minimum information. And we like hope that they get to where they need to go. Or in some cases, we actively give them information so that they can't get to where they need to go, you know? Because we have an idea of where they need to go that's different from necessarily what where they actually authentically need to go. I think that that or not piece, like that's the danger of the binary because if there's only two options, then if I'm not this one, then I'm the other one. And if I'm neither one, who the fuck am I? And so Mm -hmm. when you Mm -hmm. begin Mm -hmm. to break down binaries suddenly you can ask those questions and it's not a like a threat to your existence yeah yeah like it's not an either or it, the it's, question it has is, to be that open-ended who are you instead of are you this mm-hmm. or that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and if you're not this that's okay let's find something yeah. else right Okay, cool. So we have a feel for some of your intersecting identities, what they were back then, how they've changed, where we are today. So looking beyond high school, how do you think that your sex education journey has impacted your relationship to sex today? That's a big one. So something that has come up since we've been talking is the way that I internalized a lot of those offhand comments from my dad, you know, and it's not just from my dad, like the media reinforces that. So I spent a lot of my at least early twenties and largely because of that really bad experience, that traumatizing experience, really trying to be like a cool girl in bed. Like, oh, this is how a woman is supposed, like, oh, I'm a cool woman, you know? So now, you know, I look at that and I'm like, okay, well that like, how much of that was real and how much of that was me sort of playing a role that I thought I had to play. Through intimacy coordination training, coupled with my journey around my gut health, which has been a lifelong thing, but in the last two years, like with diagnoses and treatment and stuff has been really, has been a huge part of my life. Like those two things together helped me get back in touch with my boundaries that I had blasted through. So my sex life in, in my, I keep saying my twenties and I keep on wanting to clarify, like I'm 31. It was five minutes ago, but it's just, you know, it's <laughs> nice to be able to like bookend it. So there is like this major sort of chapter change in my life after my Saturn returns. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at a lot of my sex life in my twenties with a lot of compassion for the fact that I think I was probably blasting through a lot of boundaries in order to be this idea of a woman 
that had been prescribed to me by the media and my upbringing. I am not having sex today (laughs) Uh, at all. And it's been quite a long time. So it's been a really cool journey to understand all these things about myself and about my identity without actually having to figure out how it manifests physically in, in bed. Like I'm feeling like I've, I'm more myself than ever. I really feel that. And it's been a really, uh, Oh, I'm getting a little emotional, a little choked up over here. It's been really cool to do that without yet introducing like the mirror that is the other people in your intimate life um, to really be able to do it for myself with myself. And also the feeling that I have is that when I do bring that back into my life, when I get there, I expect to be a lot more careful and selective about who's allowed to know me that way. Yeah, absolutely. That journey is so important, especially hearing you talk about, and you didn't use this word, but like performative is kind of what I was um, Mm -hmm. gleaning. And the nature of performing is for someone, right? So when you were trying to be the cool girl as a performance of what you thought a woman should do in the bedroom, that process of like stripping that away and changing that, I feel like is really only one that can occur internally and alone. Then the pandemic happens and, you know, you are finally maybe given the space or time to step away from other people and really take that time to reflect internally. And like, I totally understand why you get, um, would get emotional thinking about it. Cause it's almost like a re-entry, like I'm coming out as the same person I've always been, but it's a new version of it. Yeah. And like figuring out what that means and what that looks like in the scope of the people in your life. I think it's really exciting. I do too. I think that that's like part of it is just this feeling of, of overwhelm tinged with, I think a little bit of grief for myself in my twenties and like the ways that I didn't listen to my body. Yeah. And, you know, back to what we were talking about, you weren't taught how to listen to your body. If we, if we didn't get comprehensive pleasure centered sex ed, which let's be honest, most of us in our generation didn't, then we're going to have to figure that out on our own. And that's not always clean. It's often messy and it often has really, really dire consequences, which is just tough. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. I hope that was cathartic in some, in some sense. I was surprised that I got that emotional about it. So that's useful information for me. Yeah. I hope, I hope so. Okay. So another big question (laughs) to just coattail right off of where we were. I would love to tack on to that question, particularly to you because uh, of the work that you do. How do you think your sex education journey has impacted your work? Oh, I wouldn't do what I do if it had gone any other way. 
I've had to actually look at like even the incredibly negative experiences that I've had sexually and sort of find a strange feeling of gratitude for them. Yeah. I would think about that often. Like if we didn't live in a world where this was happening, like what would I be doing? Yeah. (laughs) Or like if you received really stellar sex ed and like became a master of consent at a young age, like where would we have gone? Well, it's interesting (laughs) because it's like, had I received that as a kid, what else could I have done? Because there was such a dearth of it, I carved this niche out for myself. You know, when I was in college, like I was a philosophy major, but I almost changed my major to neuroscience because I just caught the bug. So I wonder sometimes like, had I experienced better sex education and consent education, I wouldn't have felt the thirst for this knowledge. And maybe I would have been a neuroscientist. Yeah. Like what if a young Mia had been educated by present day? Right. Whoa. What could they have done? (laughs) What would they have done? What brains would they be operating on today? Whoa. You know, who knows? Yeah. It makes me think of the question around like when you're in a chronic stress state due to like the circumstances of your life being that every single day you're fighting for survival. We as a society, as a culture, miss out on the brilliance of so many people whose creativity and innovation are stifled by the fact that they are merely trying to survive day to day. Yeah. I'm heavy head nodding over here. I think about that a lot. Like whatever marginalized identity you hold, you know, whether it's someone with a chronic illness, whether it's someone that's not white, whether it's someone that's not a man, what would happen if all of that burden was just lifted and people could just run with whatever they want? It's just too much to comprehend. The name of my company is Share the Load. And that's a big piece of the name. It's like, there, you know, whatever amount of privilege that I carry in my identity, the responsibility that I have with that privilege is to share the load of anybody mm-hmm. else. Yeah. True, true, true. Okay. Next yeah. question. Another doozy. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you know we're wrapping up. We have the really big questions. Is there anything that you wish that you could unlearn? Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Like everything about how women are supposed to be at sex. Yeah. I, one big one that I think about a lot is this myth that if you have sex with someone, you're going to fall in love with them. If you're a woman, Mm. not if you're a man. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Of course not. Of course not. Why would that be true? Because that myth is really damaging and I've watched it so you know toxic chemicals into my sex life where it becomes like there have been moments where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy there have been moments where I've like hoped for that to happen because I was told that it would and I've been like well on paper you seem like a great person for me to date so maybe if I just have sex with you I'll fall in love with you which is like it's just such bullshit um, I would love to unlearn. I will. Well, I have unlearned that, but I, I would love to like go back in time and be like, <laughs> just smack that one down. That's a really good one. I mean, gender stereotypes in general are so rough and they, they color everything. Yeah. Like you can't separate them out 
from any act or thought or activity that you do as a young person, like they're just a part of everything. Yeah. I wish that we all, we're never taught it. So we don't even have to unlearn it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So last question, knowing what you know now, what do you wish that your sex education journey could have looked like? Consent, 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 consent. I don't think that the way that consent is being taught, it's so far away. It's so far. The consent that we're being taught is just the tippy tip of the iceberg. I just want to pause. If consent is being taught. Yes. Is a big Yes. We don't learn shit about consent. We learn that like there's, uh, you know, contracts, there's no means no. And then now the, the thing that has made its way in is enthusiastic consent. And like, if it's not enthusiastic, then it's a no. Again, that's total bullshit. I can be willing to do something that you really want to do that I am not enthusiastic about, and I can totally consent to it. Consent is a, it's like a, <laughs> I've never thought about it this way, but it's like, it's like a communication plug-in. Mm-hmm. You know, everything that you know about communication, when you plug in consent, like everything else starts to glow. It elevates everything. And it's just seen mostly, you know, not by people who follow me, probably not by people who are listening to this podcast, but in the mainstream, it's seen as this very perfunctory thing. And it's made fun of as such, you know, like, do you want to have sex with me now? Please sign this document. Thank you, consent Mm -hmm, robot. mm -hmm. Uh, That's not, that's not what it is. Uh, I'll leave it there. Fantastic. (laughs) I'm I had a feeling that was one the one you were gonna go with based on what I know about me. Well, I was but... gonna I was debating like, you know, queerness, gender, like I don't, but really it's consent. And yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, and if is so important because there's plenty of sex education classrooms that don't even mention the word. Ugh. It's not it's not mandatory everywhere across the country. 150%. It's wild stuff, right? Like there is sex ed that exists in which consent is not discussed at all. I don't, my brain, I'm done. I'm going to leave now. Yeah. yeah. Which is why we need more Mia's. Yeah. Thank you. It needs to be talked about across the board, but it should probably be talked about a little differently when it comes to sex. Yes. Because it's not, sex is not like the other things that we engage in with other people. And so we need to figure out how to talk about it everywhere, but we also need to figure out how to talk about it in a way that works within the, within the scope of sex education. Yeah. What's coming to mind is that I think consent interpersonally doesn't always have the element of desire and pleasure. And also, you know what? Consent in interpersonal scenarios also doesn't always have the element of health. In the realm of sex ed, when we're talking about consent, we have to talk about our bodies We have to talk about what's safe for our bodies in addition to like STIs and things like that. Whereas like when I'm gauging consent, you know, do you want to go to dinner tonight? It's not necessarily like a public health issue, you know? I mean, it is right now. It is in this moment in history, in fact, but generally speaking, that's not the case. Yeah. It's like, if anyone's listening to this in 20 years, we're in a global pandemic. Yeah. Just in case you weren't aware. For um, context. Yeah. yeah. COVID-19. It's everywhere. COVID-19. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, but it's so true. And and in the classes that I teach, I talk about that. I'm like, we have to be talking about consent everywhere, but it's different when it comes to sex because there's, I don't know if I want to say there's more at stake. I mean, there is more. Well, there is. I think that there is more at stake because um, when we're talking about bodies and we're talking about intimacy and you're, I mean, clothes come off, you know, like I'm just thinking about even the difference between the conversations that I have standing up versus the conversations that I have lying down. I call them horizontal conversations because oh, I like that they get get very quiet. They get very tender. You go places that you weren't going to go, you know, like Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't go if you were standing up and just that alone, there's more at Mm -hmm. stake. Yeah. I, I, that's funny that you said that. Cause I bring in that piece too. I'm like, you're probably naked in front of the person or the people that you're engaging with. So it's just by, you know, it's just a little bit more intimate just because of that. And then you get into like the physical interactions between bodies. And I also, I just like the opportunity for harm is greater. Absolutely. I think, and I think that plays a big role, you know, our genitals and our mouths have a lot of, um, um, a, a lot of overlapping emotionality. Um, there's also like, there's a relationship between sexual trauma and dental trauma, oral trauma. I don't know. Um, I took a class, a sociology class on food. And we looked at this whole study. Of course, this was the one thing that I remember from this class, which was about like that relationship and, and the ways that, um, people are very often willing to like put something in both places or like, if not in one, then not in the other, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that as soon as you're talking about mouths, faces, genitals, butts, it's suddenly the boundaries become my physical body. And I do think there's more at stake. And I think that there's also a greater potential for trauma as opposed to when I ask you, can I have you on my podcast? Way lower stakes. Yeah, absolutely. And like, we're not really having any of those conversations in the dominant. Well, you know, there are people that are engaging in these conversations, obviously, but um, I wouldn't say that it is a part of the dominant cultural dialogue in an effective way. Yeah, that was a good one. I'm glad you said consent. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our (laughs) listed questions. We took a lot of twists and turns, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So did I. So I would love to give you the opportunity, Mia, to um, let the folks out there know where they can find you and take your classes and learn from you. Thank you. I'm on Instagram at Consent Wizard. I'm on Twitter as well, but I'm not super active there. My website is sharetheloadinc.com. That's where you would sign up for classes and stuff. And that's also where I have downloadable and streamable classes and then other stuff like my workbook. That's also like an easy way to contact me. And you can find my intimacy coordination work through that as well. And you can also work with me privately that way or read more about what that would be like. Oh, I also have a Patreon. I have a a share the load Patreon. um, That's like a kind of self-paced study space where I post resources and reflections on things that I'm learning and like journaling questions and media examples and mindfulness exercises and things like that. It starts at $5 a month. And then you also get discount codes to like anything in my shop and to classes and stuff. So it's a really nice community too. There's a discord there. Um, so people, 
um, it's, it's really charming. People just talk about like, oh, I had this conversation with my roommate. It went really well. I applied this thing that I learned and it, yay. You know, it's like, it's so sweet. Mm-hmm. I really love um, watching the discord unfold. So anyway, that's, that's a really uh, cool offering that I'm excited about right now. Awesome. So folks work with Mia, book them, take their classes. They're fantastic. <laughs> I've taken some of their consent stuff. It's a must. Um, and all of this will be on the Instagrams that I post as well as on my website in the show notes. So anyone that's listening, that's interested in following along with Mia, you can find them there. So that brings us to the end of our conversation. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I think everyone who's listening is going to learn so much from this conversation. Thank you, Carol. Thanks for having me. This was really nice. You can find the show on Instagram at Sex Ed Rewind or online on my website at caroconfort.me. I drop new episodes to podcast platforms every Monday. The cover art and website are by Kelsey Reifler and the podcast is produced and edited all by me.